Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, Jesse. Skip Sherman here from Montreal, Canada. I wanted to congratulate you on 1,000 episodes. You are truly the hardest working man in podcasting and an inspiration to all of us indie podcasters out there who sometimes feel like, you know, we're dancing in the dark. You should be incredibly proud of the community that you've built through your podcast. Um, Set Lusting Bruce is, you know, the must listen for all Springsteen fans. Congratulations, Jesse. Here's to another 1,000 episodes and to all the glory days ahead. Well, the thing that everyone must always remember is that term rock and roll is indefinable, right? What is it? It's it's more than anything, it's an attitude, right? Uh, to put musical boundaries and fences around that word is impossible and wrong. So, you know, Willie Nelson is a nominee this year. Does he belong in it? it you know, but as an outlaw country musician, that's a rock and roll attitude, right? So it's not just about the music. It's about the culture. It's about personalities. It's about your your particular stance on stage and in the recording studio. everyone and welcome to a new episode of set lusting bruce your podcast all about bruce springsteen his music and mostly his fans i am your host jesse jackson as we are counting down to 1000 episodes that is a lot of bruce talk i have uh robert santanelli joining me and you have a pretty cool job don't you bob i do indeed i do indeed and i've had it different kinds of jobs related to Bruce over the many, many years, but uh, this one is probably the coolest. Yeah. So if you could tell my guests a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, again, my name is Bob Santelli and I, um, I grew up on the Jersey shore and uh, I went to Monmouth university. I was in bands as a kid all through college um, and then became a music journalist in college I was the editor, uh, entertainment editor of my college newspaper, which was at Monmouth University, which is where um, many of Bruce's very, very first fans uh, came from. Because uh, Bruce played there a, a few times, a couple of legendary, actually, performances at Monmouth University. It's also located just down the street where he wrote Born to Run um, and conveniently located about five miles north of Asbury Park. So I spent my my time there and became the uh, Asbury Park music critic in the early 1970s. And from there, developed a career in music journalism, only to take a 
a side view, if you will, or, or, or a side street, I guess you should say, and became a music museum curator, was involved in the creation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which got me out of New Jersey and on to this brand new thing that uh, uh, for the past 30 years I've been on, which is music museums, music journalism. So I went from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to Paul Allen's Experience Music Project out in Seattle, now called MOPOP or Museum of Popular Culture. And then down to LA for the Grammy Museums that I built and Woody Guthrie Center, all in all, some eight, nine museums that I've, music museums that I created. And um, and now most recently, of course, um, I'm with uh, Bruce Springsteen's archives and Center for American Music. And also uh, I teach and very much a part of what's going on here in the Northwest at Oregon State University as well. It, it is kind of fun. You've come full circle, right? Yeah. You started at you there at Monmouth and now then you are at this point in your career, you've come home to work on uh, all the things you've done your whole life, kind of getting together to do this for Bruce's archives. It's got to feel satisfying. Oh, yeah. And that's that's deliberate. Uh, I had every intention of doing this. Um, it was a dream, really, at first. And then slowly but surely over the years, uh, last five or six years, it becomes a reality. So my intention always was, and, and people ask, well, well, why at your stage of the career, why would you want to embark on something like this? <clears throat> and there's a couple of reasons for that, Jesse. I mean, first, it's um, I've always kept my identification and relationship with New Jersey. Um, and my accent always gives me away anyway, so people know where I'm from. Um, it's my region, the Jersey Shore is, you know, I love the Jersey Shore and it's my home, my spiritual home, as well as my, my early home as a, as a young person. I went to Monmouth University. I taught there. I saw Bruce there in concert numerous times. Uh, it was a, a give back to my alma mater. And then to be really honest with you, you know, I rode Bruce's coattails as a journalist. Um <laughs> Having known the band members and, and meeting Bruce for the first time as early as 1968 uh, allowed me access and uh, the opportunities to write about him, the band, um, doing books with Max Weinberg and with Bruce. Uh, it, it's an opportunity to make sure that I played a little bit of a part of making sure his legacy was preserved in the right way and it remained in New Jersey. It is, it is kind of fun. I was uh, this summer uh, to celebrate my birthday. Um, my family, we all drove up to Tulsa and made um, a, a mini vacation out of it, going to see the Bob Dylan Museum and then the Woody Guthrie Museum. And at the time, there was a Bruce Springsteen live exhibit there. So it was just perfect. Um, and I've urged all, everyone I'm here in Texas that this is definitely it's a great weekend trip to go. If you want to get away, Tulsa is a wonderful city. And those two museums right next to each other, it's just really a lot of bang for your buck. Oh, it is. Uh, they're great museums. They're sister museums, if you will, to what we're doing in Jersey. Yeah. Of course, I, I you know, played a major part in the Woody Guthrie Center, not in the Bob Dylan Center, but the Woody Guthrie Center. And uh, it's one of my favorite museums, you know, um, yeah. not in part because we develop it because Woody Guthrie 
like Bruce, um, he's meant a lot to me. Um, I've written three books on him and uh, he is probably the most influential music person in my life, even more so than Bruce. Mm -hmm. That's good. So I always like to start at the beginning. Growing up in Jersey, what kind of music did your family listen to? What were you listening to as a kid? You know, I was I was born in Jersey City, uh, right across the river from New York. I'm Italian American, so that only means one thing: Frank Sinatra. Right, my earliest music memory is of Sinatra. Um, my mother and father were big Sinatra fans. My mother was a Bobby Soxer, which of course was that first generation of hardcore uh, Sinatra groupies. Um, so it was, it, it was that. And then, you know, my father, I remember as a little boy, um, just prior to the arrival of the Beatles, we listened to the Four Seasons. Again, that whole Italian-American connection. We lived just a a few miles from Newark where that band was from. And so there was a connection to them. And then of course, with the Beatles, once the Beatles hit, then, uh, then I was off on my own then, you know, um, in 1965, I was at, uh, I was in the first row of a show in Newark, New Jersey with the Rolling Stones first concert ever four or five rows back unbeknownst to me was a very young, equally young Max Weinberg. And, uh, my father would always say, uh, he was a New Jersey state trooper, by the way, very different from what I became. But uh, he um, he always would say that's the night he lost his son. <laughs> and uh, what he meant essentially was that after seeing the Stones in person so up close, having seen the Beatles the year before on Ed Sullivan, I was hooked. I was already playing guitar as a 12 year old or whatever I was and totally committed to the music uh, in a way that many other people of my generation, baby boom generation did as well. Um, the good news for me is that I never left it. That That is wonderful that you've been able to um, take this passion and make a living out of it because a lot of us don't get that chance. Um, so you've already mentioned not knowing that Max was in the room, but when can you remember when you first heard about Bruce and what about his music spoke to you? Sure. Well, in 1966, my family moved out of where we were living in a city called West New York. It was west of New York, just west of the Hudson River on the Jersey side. And we moved down to the Jersey Shore. And I was in band, immediately got in bands down there as, as a kid. I was in high school. And... Um, a friend of mine, uh, we went up to a, a place called Red Bank, New Jersey, which is a really cool community these days. But there was a coffee house up there. There were a lot of coffee houses and teen clubs all around New Jersey at the time. And I walked into this. Uh, they took me to this coffee house. And it's a long story, but I'll just say um, I thought I was pretty cool because I was able to, as a really young kid, cross the river and hang out in Greenwich Village and spend my Saturdays looking for Bob Dylan. <clears throat> but uh, I thought I knew music and I thought I knew everyone, including a guy that I really thought was amazing called Tim Buckley. And Jeff Buckley, for those of you who are younger, Jeff Buckley's father. Who, uh, and I, I I just just thought his music was great. And here I am, I walked through this, uh, I walked through the coffee house and none of my friends had heard about Tim Buckley. 
and there's this guy playing solo guitar and he's playing Tim Buckley music. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So I went up and after the set and I introduced myself and I said, man, do you know, Tim Buckley, and it was Bruce, you know, and he was, uh, this was 1968 or something like that. Um, and then I, I had no other contact until the following year. I went to Monmouth at the time, Monmouth college and steel mill. One of Bruce's early bands played my freshman orientation. We have the photograph actually in the archives. And um, that was it. I heard that band and went, wow. And from that point on, you know, I would write about them if I could. And Steel Mill would play all over the Jersey Shore. They were certified rock stars in our area. They could play a free show on the beach and 3,000 people would show up, which was a lot of people for an unsigned band at that time. They were big stars. And of course, that's really where the true original Bruce Springsteen fans really come from. It's from uh, the longest of the long from the Steel Mill days. Bruce had two, three other bands prior to that, Short-Lived Earth and Child, and then, of course, the Castiles. But it was really Steel Mill because <clears throat> they developed a uh, following not just at the shore, but also in Richmond, Virginia, and elsewhere up in Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and elsewhere. They were an amazing band. Imagine Cream meets the Allman Brothers meets Bruce Springsteen. And that's what Steel Mill was all about. And we were able to, uh, to I've seen them a number of times when they played at Monmouth College and beyond. Um, and uh, I became a fan ever since. So you've been able to go on with this um this fandom you you have a wonderful book greetings from east street the story of the bruce springsteen the band i i remember buying it back in when i first heard about it in 2011 and it's just been a wonderful book um hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. How did your... How do you... Why did you decide to make music journalism what you wanted to do with your life? And then maybe kind of talk about how you got into the museum business. And I know that's a complicated question, but yeah. You know, I, um, the week after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I asked my mom for an electric guitar. It was very close to uh, my birthday had passed and uh, just a few days but uh, and my dad had been at work and hadn't been home. And, uh, you know, I said, this is what I want for my birthday. So they got me an electric guitar, like so many thousands of other guys, young kids yeah. at that time in, in February of 1964. And, you know, self-taught I wasn't anything special, but uh, it just took me to the Beatles and, and ju- it just clicked like. Many, many people of my age say the same thing, who, who and Bruce included, Steve yeah. Vance including. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I played and, and started, and I was very much influenced by Bob Dylan living in West New York and having access to Greenwich Village and going over to Washington Square on Sundays and listening to the folk singers. All of this was just gathering it all up, you know? And so when I moved down to the Jersey shore, I got into bands and I played in bands all through high school and college. And then um, my senior year in college, uh, I was also an athlete, a big time, really, really involved in surfing. So I was very much in the surf scene back then as well, but I I broke my hand, my left hand. I'm a lefty. I played guitar righty, but uh, I broke my hand and it, it, it one finger just gave me a lot of problems to the point where I couldn't play guitar for uh, almost two years. Wow. And I gave it up. Uh, and the reason why is because equally important in my life was even though I was not encouraged by my parents, my parents were working class and I wanted to be a writer and I was routinely discouraged by my parents not to do that it's too safe they're drug addicts they're drunks they're you know they're they lead bad lives become a teacher which i was very interested in becoming as well so i I never really had that that encouragement until later on but uh, i i started to write in college and i really fell in love with the idea that i can get into concerts for free and i can get free records by giving people my opinion on music, I'm there. So I started to make, I fell in love with with that. There was my love of writing and my love of music. I married those two and off I went, you know, trying to build a career. Back then you could actually have a career in music journalism. There were enough magazines. I didn't want to become a staff writer at the Asbury Park Press. I was offered a job, but I said, I'll do it as a freelancer, which would allow me to write for many of the other music magazines that were in uh, in New York at the time. So I did that, had a great time just, and this of course is mid seventies, Bruce is breaking with Born to Run. So I was right there at ground zero, which was really exciting for me as a journalist and as a fan. Segway a few years ahead and I'm, uh, I'm writing for Rolling Stone. 
And uh, I had just published a, a book that took me three years to write on the blues called The Big Book of Blues. And uh, Jan Wenner, who is the publisher of Rolling Stone, uh, he is also the, the really the godfather of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. But he, long story short, deputized five of writers to become this new thing called Music Museum Curators. None of us had any music, any museum experience, or none of us were music museum studies graduates. We're all music journalists. Uh, but I was a freelancer full time. And so I need I had three little kids at home. Um, and so I I said, I'll do it. I want to be a part of it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I love, it was just like journalism. It was you're telling stories instead of just using words, using pictures and artifacts, going out, finding the artifacts. It was a, two and a half years of doing that. I just loved it. And uh, when the opportunity came of those five music journalists who became music museum curators, two of us moved to Cleveland to actually open up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My music editor, the, the late James Henke, uh, who um, <clears throat> moved with me, he became the head curator. And I switched over because I had teaching experience. Uh, I switched over to uh, become the, the, at a curation and went into, uh, I became the first director of education at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that was close to 30 years ago. And I've been on that trail ever since. So you ended up making your mom and dad happy by becoming a teacher. Yes, I did. I, did. I, I, that, I, did. I could see them. Oh, now, you know, it doesn't matter all the books you've published. Now <laughs> I can do. Um, uh, that's true. That's true. Is there is there a couple of stories about finding artifacts or, or finding things that you want to share? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I would... Uh, I would get on a plane and because my area, every of the five writers, um, we all had expertise and really what we, why we were successful in our job. We all met, we had 18 months, 18 months to build a, out 50,000 square feet of exhibit space. Now to your listeners may not know what that is. That's a big museum, right? The average exhibit is about, you know, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000. So you can imagine that's a lot of exhibits in a big area for people who did not know how to do this or had never done it before. What we did have that was brilliant was we had Rolodexes. So we could get people on the phone. So in my area, which was because I had just come out of writing the big book of blues, I knew all the roots people down in Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, Nashville. And I knew a lot because I had always written about roots music. And it was something that was fascinated as I grew as a journalist, became really interested in how American culture and history married American music. And so I, um, uh, that, that was where, I, where I was, you know? And so I uh, get on a plane in Newark airport and I'd head out for a week or two at a time, and I'd basically be scouring the Mississippi Delta or Louisiana or wherever it would take me, Nashville, to put together um, these exhibits. And you know, there, there were there were lots of lots of things where you know, um, finding amazing Howlin' Wolf stuff, you know, uh, climbing in the attic that hadn't no one had been up there since his death his wife a little too feeble to get up there and finding his guitar and and all his books uh dealing with um new orleans in the middle of the night and and securing 
Professor Longhair material simply because the family was afraid that if it left New Orleans, they'd be they'd have problems and I had to sure. do it in the middle of the night, things like that. Um, but clearly it was really, you know, my, my, my father says, you're, you're like a rock and roll detective, you know, you're, you're following leads. And it was great. And I, I thought for sure I should have written one of the five of us should have written about this because it had never been done before so fast, so intensely and with such naivete and uh, yet it, you know, we opened that museum on time, on budget, to great acclaim. And um, it was one of the most exciting, from 1993 to 1995, I think it was one of the most exciting two-year periods of my life, just because how exciting it was and how brand new this idea was and that people couldn't believe what I was doing. And uh, uh, others, my other colleagues, you know, they're dealing with punk or whatever. And I also dealt with, Reggae, I was, you know, I had lived, I corresponded out of Jamaica as a music journalist. Was, and everyone in my area was really interested in downtown New York scene with the talking heads and Blondie uh, and punk. <clears throat> I was far more interested in Jamaica and reggae because I was a surfer and I would go down every winter to surf in the Caribbean. So I, Bob Marley and, and those uh, early reggae guys were my, um, my, part of my, if you will, clients. So I spent time finding Bob's stuff. And and then no one at the time, which is really interesting, we wanted to do something on Seattle. And none of, none of my colleagues were interested in it. And I said, I'll do it. I'd never been to Seattle before. And so I put together the Seattle, the first Seattle exhibit, not knowing too much at the time about grunge, having so deeply been involved in reggae and American roots music. But that's how I got to uh, the Northwest and, and fell in love with the Pacific Northwest, which is where I ultimately landed. Do What do you say to people? Because every year there is a lot of angst on social media about the the expanding base of who's going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I always take it as... It, it's called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the reality, it is pop culture music, right? There is a wide breadth. And, you know, Dolly Parton, you know, specifically said, hey, I don't know if I should be in this. And uh, people said, yes, you should. And she did this wonderful. Uh, I, I loved the everyone doing Jolene with her at the end. Uh, there's other people coming in. What since you've been involved with this for a long time, what do you think about that? Well, the thing that everyone must always remember is that term rock and roll is indefinable, right? What is it? It's it's more than anything, it's an attitude, right? Uh, to put musical boundaries and fences around that word is impossible and wrong. So, you know, Willie Nelson is a nominee this year. Does he belong in it? it you know, but as an outlaw country musician, that's a rock and roll attitude, right? So it's not just about the music. It's about the culture. It's about personalities. It's about your your particular stance on stage and in the recording studio. So I hip hop, hip hop is rock and roll under the broadest definition of it. Now, if you want to get really precise and talk musical definitions, well, it doesn't have a you know a, a blues progression in it or whatever. 
That's wrong because rock and roll is not meant to be defined. When we started the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there were a number of music critics who were absolutely positively against the concept of institutionalizing rock and roll. And they were adamant. They were, man, they hated the fact that we were doing this. Eventually, they all came around to it, I, I'm happy to say, and relieved. But um, but you can't, you, you, you can't put the fence around the music or the, the term. And it's the same thing with jazz. You know, how do you define jazz? How do you define blues? American music terms are, you, you cannot truly define them and be accurate. And so someone like Dolly Parton or Chuck D and Public Enemy or whomever. No, I, I, you know, I believe that they, they could be in them. I could, I, I, I understand that traditionalists where they're coming from. I just think they have to take a broader attitude toward it. And a lot of people say, ah, you're doing it because you're running out of people. They're not running out of people. There's still a lot of people from the sixties and seventies that need to be inducted. Um, and so uh, that's not the reason. It's because taking the broadest definition. And you're applying it the way it should be applied, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I like that answer. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, it is a a wide, you know, it, it cuts a wide just path. Yeah. And, and it is so inclusive, um, whether you're like when you. Ken Burns documentary on country music or in his documentary on jazz, right? How far those roots go into it. So yeah, that's, that's well said. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use that next time I read someone doing that. <laughs> um, so um, Bruce is touring. Yeah. How exciting is that? Any thoughts on where, were you tempted to be in Tampa last night? You know, I I could have been. I I'm going to the Hollywood show, um, okay. which is next week. Um, <clears throat> we are very busy at the archives, and we have a couple of big announcements that uh, um, hopefully your listeners will pay attention to in the next. Uh, I'd say in the next three or four weeks that uh, okay. will very be, be very much Bruce related, uh, and so I've been up to my neck with my colleague Eileen Chapman. I know you've had on your podcast before. Yes, I she, did. Wonderful person. The director, uh, one of my best yeah. friends and uh, the director, me being the executive director. Uh, well, we've been busy on that, but we will be at the at the Hollywood show. And then, you know, I'll pick and choose as we go along just to stay abreast of things. But Quite honestly, I'm also trying to raise money for the archives as well. So following the tour in the places where I suspect there's, as we say in the business, a fat wallet, I'm going to try and be there and nice. uh, try and raise some money. Um, but that that's primarily what I'll be doing. Um, Bruce spent, spent part of the day with Bruce last Friday. Uh, talking about things and i know he was very excited the next day he was leaving sat this past saturday for for um florida uh i know they're very excited i spoke to max and gary before they went and everyone's real excited i heard great things about the first show i'm looking forward to seeing them but you know it's a long tour they haven't been a, playing in a long time you know that that thing called COVID, of course kept everyone grounded but uh i'm sure max wouldn't mind me telling you that I all through COVID and all through this past year, he's been drumming. I mean, if there's someone 
who's in super shape in that band other than Bruce, it's Max Weinberg. I mean, he's the other athlete, of course, having to play the drums. So I expect great things. And I expect, as you know, and your fans know, and listeners that, you know, the show will evolve. This is going to be a long tour and uh, we're just getting started. So it's, it's going to be great to follow it and, and see ultimately how it develops into what it should be the greatest rock and roll show of all time. Yeah. I, um, I, I stole this line from one of my friends, but I say it all the time with all apologies to Walt Disney world. The happiest place on earth is a Bruce Springsteen (laughs) concert. Right. Uh, Yeah. And I do think um, I've seen a little bit of, um, you know, fans debating as fans do. And I keep remind, and I think a lot of us remind people it's been six years since they toured. There is a whole group of people that have never seen the E Street Band perform live. That's right. They, they, they want, they, they are desperate for everything. They want to hear everything, you know, from all this. And, and Bruce has such a large catalog that it is, it is hard to make everyone happy because you're always going to be a song. Oh, I wish he had done this, but it's unless he's going to play 12 hours, That's it's right. not going to happen. That's right. Yeah. Right. You know, I like to tell people that uh, at the archives, now we're in the 50th anniversary business uh, because what we did was you probably heard about, uh, we had a great symposium at Monmouth University in early January last month um, to celebrate and to really look back at greetings, right? Greetings was released the first week in January of 1973. And so we, we tried to hit it as close to the actual date as possible. To be honest with you, Jesse, I, I had no idea what to expect. We had never done anything like this before. As you said, it'd been such a long time since people connected with Bruce other than the albums. Uh, I thought maybe we get 50 to 100 people. We got 600 people. And this is for an album that if you're a huge fan of greetings, you're probably older, right? Uh, right. You, you know, there are a lot of people who come on board who are in their forties and fifties uh, for born in the USA. Right. Right. But to go back and have an emotional true connection to greetings, I figured ah, it's not that many people around. Well, they came in from Ireland. They came in from Europe, came in from all over America. 600 people probably could have sold another 200 tickets if we had the room. So I was really encouraged by the kind of questioning and the support and enthusiasm. It was comforting for me as a, as a Springsteen fan to know that these fans still connect as far back as fi- a half century, a half century ago. That's pretty incredible. So Bruce's impact on the, on people is not only impressive and long, but deep. And uh, we saw that at the greetings um, conference. And I will tell you that shortly uh, yet another announcement we'll make is, you know, we'll follow now the quote 50th anniversary business, as I said, sure. many of Fans and listeners know that he also released Wild Innocent, East Street Shuffle, in 1973, in November, late October, November of 1973. So we will be doing another conference, another symposium at Monmouth University to celebrate Wild Innocent. So uh, pretty exciting. And the expectation is we'll have just as many people and just as much excitement as we did at the first I absolutely do think you will. And I know that that's on my bucket list to come out and, you know, and make one of these seminars. Do you, is the ultimate goal to have a public facing uh, facility museum to show some of these artifacts? 
Not so much a museum, but yeah, we have pretty ambitious plans. Uh, we're in the process of putting it all together. Uh, if any of you visited the archives, and of course, you're all welcome to do it. Uh, Eileen yeah. is there, and she's very proud of what she and her team has done. Uh, we're bursting at the seams. Uh, we are literally bursting at the seams. We took Bruce through on Friday, and he was <laughs> he was flabbergasted at the amount of materials there, and he walked in on six Monmouth University students who were busy at work categorizing and things. And we didn't tell them that Bruce was going to stop by. And of course, they freaked out and they were so excited to see the guy that they've been dealing with for the last three or four years of their college career. Yeah. But anyway, they um, it's it's a it's something we have very ambitious plans um, and we want to make sure that it's fully accessible to the uh to the general public remember we are the bruce springsteen archives and center for american music and that's in part because of bruce's insistence that if we were going to do this i wouldn't do it without his um support and uh and he's okay with it and he and he said to me something a few years ago uh that i thought was very telling and it's our mantra he says you know bob i am a chapter in the ongoing story of american music that's what i am i'm not the story if you're going to make me the story i'm I'm uncomfortable with that make me a chapter make me a part and tell the bigger story of american music at the same time you're telling mine that would make sense to me and i think that would be useful to people and teachers etc and that's why we're the bruce springsteen archives and center for american music so that center for american music allows us to do all kinds of exhibits and all kinds of things and that excites me very very much because of my love of american music in general not just bruce music you know Um, we'll do things on the blues or we'll do things on um punk or cowboy music or whatever we want i mean they all fall under this huge banner of american music what is the best way if fans want to support this project what is there a way that we can help sure do this support it jesse many fans have already i mean we get donations all the time we are up to about Thirty-seven thousand pieces. I mean, think about that. And then wow. that, you know, one piece is a magazine, right? Or right. it could be a photograph. So you know, it's not artifacts. We, we'd be like the Smithsonian then. Right. But we do. I mean, we have we have incredible support from fans, and as original fans, first generation fans, I'll call them, get older, and uh, they have collections, and they realize, you know, what am I going to do with this? Um, I should put it to good use. And we get a call for, at the archives. Eileen does. And, uh, you know, some things, you know, we're not really interested in taking someone's album collection. Uh, you know, we got a lot of that. Uh, but you'd be surprised what fans send us. It's fantastic. I and mean, we have some early posters uh, that fans have said, look, I had this because I was at this show in 1970 or whatever. And so it's, it's been terrific. Um, our hope is to make all of this accessible, um, through a digital experience. We have a website, Springsteen Archives, right? Dot org, and people can go on that website. <clears throat> Soon you'll be able to financially donate if you'd like. We now have some swag and t shirts and hats that you can buy to help support. It is a 501c3. 
It is a fully nonprofit venture and educationally driven 501c3. So again, you as the tour begins, we're going to kind of piggyback the tour with information about who we are and what we're doing. That's why I said earlier that we're going to make a couple of huge announcements uh, in the next month or so. And we'll make sure that your, you, you and your, your people know about it and even to come back on your show if necessary. Oh talk yeah. I would love that because I do know that, um, you know, one of the things that my wife and I love doing is going to presidential museums. Mm, you know, we just true. love, regardless of the politics, just seeing the history that happened, uh, whether it's President Bush, President Johnson, President Clinton, you know, uh, President Carter, you know, just it's it's amazing that slice of their life. So I, I absolutely would want to support that. And I know my audience would too. Um, so uh, you, you, I don't want to take too much of your time, but is there anything, um, any, any special songs or albums of Bruce's catalog that means a lot to you? Of course, you know, and now you're asking me to put on my fans hat, right? Yes, I am taking off the director, executive director, putting on your fans hat. Yes. Well, clearly, I mean, well, before I do that, let me put back yeah. my old music critics hat. Yes. And I have always been of the belief and I try not to celebrate this too much because people think I'm biased, but I think the greatest rock and roll record of all time is the Born to Run album. I, I think it, it checks every box for me for what a perfect rock and roll record can and should be. So with that said, obviously, one of my favorite, if not my favorite album is uh, is Born to Run. There's no question about it. And because I go back the early days, you know, um, certainly I have very strong feelings for greetings and especially Wild Innocent. Uh, I remember hearing killer versions of kitty's back which by the way he played in, in tampa i'm told i saw um, that yes um it's one of my favorites and, and um so i'm partial to them but then as you get up you know into the latter stuff um i really thought a very brave courageous move was to put out tunnel of love here were his fans growing older and dealing with marriage and and issues with relationships and he explored that so brilliantly on that album uh and i love the song tunnel of love having worked on the boardwalks of jersey uh, i know that particular ride tunnel of love intimately and so i thought he, he just captured it so well uh, and then I would say probably people might be surprised, but I am also a fan of Human Touch. Uh, I love the song Human Touch. Uh, and then as we move forward, uh, I think Magic is probably an album that I identify with greatly as well. But I'm truly an old school Springsteen fan. So when you talk about the things that are real personal to me as a fan, it's the early albums. Yeah, I, I, I do. I was a casual fan. Um, and then in 2002, um, I went to my first show, The Rising, and that's where I went from casual to fanatic. And so yeah. I have a lot of um, emotional attachment to a lot of the later albums sure. because of that, you know. Yeah. And so and I do think it all depends on when you become a fan. Right. What is it uh, similar to, um, you know, the Doctor Who fandom, 
right? They, there's always, they talk about who's their doctor because right. that was the actor who was doing it. So what is their era of Springsteen? And one of my favorite stories, Bob, is I had a guy on who'd been a fan for years. And he said that in 1999, he was sitting in the pit, standing in the pit at a reunion tour. And he said, well, this is it. It's never going to get any better than this. Yeah. You know, he's, he fired the band. They've come back. They performed again. We might get a tour every couple of years, but this is the ultimate of the E Street Band. And he says, I want to go back to that guy and say, you don't know what's coming. You don't understand that we're getting the rising. We're getting wrecking ball. We're getting magic. We're getting an autobiography. We're getting him on Broadway. <laughs> you know, that was the halfway point, yeah. not even the close to the end. Yeah. No, no question. And there's, I think he has a lot more in the tank. I uh, think he does. Healthy and in shape and his connection to the music has not suffered one minute, you know? Um, I I love the fact that he did the new soul album. I mean, this is something that he wanted to do and for a long time. And I know how much that music meant to him as a kid growing up, you know, being around Asbury park, um, a lot of people know Asbury Park today in its great renaissance, but back in the 60s, it was very much a segregated town, literally by the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bruce and friends would go over to the African-American side and hear some of the great soul music that the tri-state New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area could offer. And it was an education and I think that record for him is a payback to that as well. That love affair that began as a teenager now can come to fruition in a record, in a record that, um, um, you know, fans may wonder why he did it. Uh, this was always in Bruce, always in Bruce. And I'm so glad he did it. So me too. And I just, uh, I, a couple of people like, well, why? And I go, why not? And it's such a joy. It is such a joy to hear. I was so glad that they did a couple of songs live. Uh, it, it just, it is. And I, of course, biased. I'm doing a podcast about him and his fans. But I love the fact that he keeps pushing himself and the band to creatively. Yeah. to do new things, to do different things, to explore different avenues. And I think that's all you want from a creative person. I think that's what all of us want, you sure. know, in our creative lives to try to make, you know, to keep pushing ourselves and have fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bob, I could talk to you for an hour or more, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I do want to, though, I end every podcast with the Mary question. So, for those of you who are um, listening because Bob is awesome, uh, Jay Armstrong, who is an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area, recently retired, would spend two days with his honors English class talking about Thunder Road. They would go through the lyrics. He would talk about the imagery. They would talk about the themes that Bruce explores in that poem. And then at the end of the two days, he would ask the question, does Mary get in the car? So, Bob, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Well, if she's truly from New Jersey, she probably does. And the reason being is because back in the 1970s, you have to understand if you're not from Jersey, it's probably hard for you to understand. But I will tell you this. We were the butt of many jokes from Johnny Carson, and other late night hosts. We were caught between Philly and New York. Our 
self-respect was hardly anything. The goal always was to get out of New Jersey. As a young kid and a surfer, my friends and I, our dream was to move to the promised land, which was California. And ultimately, all of us did at one point. But Mary gets in the car because that's what the whole concept of escape from this thing called Jersey was all about. Bruce comes along and almost single-handedly changes that. I say almost single-handedly because when the New York football giants began playing in New Jersey, even though they still called themselves the New York Giants, which hurt us deeply. But we finally had an identifiable thing, a football team, even though they were from across the river. Bruce is the first genuine, absolute, born and raised, hold on, uh, uh, born and raised uh, person from New Jersey. I, I always admired him. I just told him this again recently that, the fact that you demanded that you were from New Jersey when they wanted to make you a New York artist and you called that first album Greetings from Asbury Park, I don't think he knew how important that was to so many young people at the time. It gave us a sense of respect. All of a sudden, for many of us, it was at least semi-cool to be from New Jersey to the point where I remember I moved out to California to go to grad school at the University of Southern California. And it was 1978, and I showed up in San Diego um, at a bar because Bruce was playing there, and I had on my Stone Pony T-shirt, which I wore as a badge of honor, and it was torn and ripped. And some really cool Southern California guy with puka shells and a Hawaiian shirt walked up to me in a bar, and he said, uh, I'd like to buy your T-shirt. Now, obviously, this is in Springsteen area. It was just outside of the arena where he was playing. I thought it was being a wise ass. And I said, get out of here. You know, and he says, no, man, I mean it. Name your price. And I said, back in 1970, 100 bucks. And he said, and, and I said, and your shirt. And he said, OK. We went into the men's room. We exchanged shirts. I walked out with 100 bucks and a whole new appreciation of, oh, my goodness, Jersey, you've come, you've made it. Thanks to Bruce. We're somebody. And uh, and I told that story more than once, but it was a defining factor for me. Uh, and it made me feel like, okay, people are recognizing that uh, we got something. There's something about Jersey. And of course, Bruce is the living embodiment of that. And his music is a representation of that. And I have to tell you, it made me, it made my month. I mean, it was really, really uh really a special thing for me on top of a great show in San Diego. That is awesome. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Through Eileen at the archives. You know, I okay. travel a lot. I'm bouncing around. I don't do Twitter. I don't do any. I just okay. can't keep up with it. So yeah. it's just a simple one where you can just write to Springsteen archives. That's why um, I try and answer everyone okay. eventually, um, but yeah. on the road quite a bit uh, doing all the things that we're trying to do. Uh, keeps Absolutely. Me busy, so. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Hang on, Bob, while I do a little business. Listeners, go out to the website, check it out, uh, bookmark it because there's big things coming. And uh, we want you want to make sure you see it in plenty of time. Once there's swag available, we're going to want to put a little bit of our monies that's not going to concert tickets to help the archive. Uh, for now, though, be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. 
I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at setlustingbruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.